Greetings and welcome to TanakhStudy.com. My name is Yitzchak Et Shalom, and I'm honored and privileged to be studying perhaps the most challenging book in the Tanakh, both as far as language and ideas go, uh, and that is the book of Eov, together with you, over the course of the next uh, month and a half or so, uh, in which we study one chapter per podcast, uh, coming out roughly to six uh, six chapters a week. Um, uh, unlike many books in Tanakh, uh, the division of chapters in Eov really does reflect an accurate division of the text, uh, as we will see beginning in Paragimel. And there is a brief introduction I'll give before we start the third chapter uh, to several of the nuances of the main body of the text. But one, two quick overview comments uh, about, say, for Eov uh, that must be stated at the beginning uh, before we get going. Uh, I'll also mention at the beginning of this podcast that uh, Sefer Eov was my father, Alava Shalom's favorite Sefer, and he relished studying it. I would like to dedicate this study to the memory of Rav Asher Aaron ben Avram ben Yamin, uh, uh First introductory comment is that Eov is two really very different books. The first two chapters and the end of the last chapter, chapter 42, uh, are written in the style of prose of Tanakh, style of narrative. Uh, they use uh, lots of uh, brashit uh, allusions uh, and is even utilizes the normal trope marks, what we call Ta'ameha Mikra, uh, that are used in the other 21 books of the Tanakh and therefore, the reader who is familiar with uh, all of Nevi'im and Torah and the Megillot is, uh, would be comfortable reading that, that section. Um, when you get to the bulk of Sefer Eov, which is Paragimel through the middle of Paragmembet, everything changes. The style is one of poetry. Um, the length of the psukim as a result is different. The lexicon is different. Uh, issues of, uh, of parallelism and, and all sorts of other poetic tools suddenly come to the fore. Uh, and indeed, those special Tamehamikra that are used in Tehillim and Mishle are used there also, which is why they are referred to as Tame Emet, Eov, Mishle, and Tehillim. Uh, even though not every part of Eov is that way, as I said, the beginning and the end are not. Uh, that's the first part. The second issue is, uh, very quick, the issue of authorship and timing of Sefer Eov. And the answer is that we know very little. Uh, the uh, Breita, quoted in um, the towards the end of the first chapter of Masachet Baba Batra, uh, suggests that Moshe Rabbeinu himself was the author of Sefer Eov, but then subsequent Breita quote other opinions as to who wrote Eov, when Eov lived, and even makes the suggestion that the Rambam picks up and adopts, which is that Eov lo mashalhu, that there was no person such as Eov, and that the entire thing is a fable, meaning that the story about Eov that we read at the beginning and the end is really there to create a framework for the bulk of the book, which is the philosophic discussion about the single most challenging issue to any theist, which is the problem of what we refer to as theodicy. Theodicy meaning evil in God's world. God being good, God being omniscient, God being omnipotent, uh, and God desiring to do good with his with his creatures, and yet bad things happen, Sefer Eov is essentially contending with that. And that according to the position, the Eov lo hayav lo nivra, 
that the story of EO was created as a framework or almost as an opportunity uh, for us to uh, to explore these issues, uh, much like Rabbi Yudha Halevi created the Chozar King uh, and the conversations he had with the Chaver as a way of creating the defense of Judaism, which of course is the is the formal title of the book. Uh, against the onslaught of Islamic philosophy of the 12th century. Okay, we'll begin uh, our study of Sefer Yov, and again, at the beginning of the third chapter, when we start the actual dialogue, philosophic dialogues, then I'll give an introduction both to Tameh HaMikrav, Tameh Met, and to the particular framework and style. But in the meantime, the narrative we'll read will sound very familiar and not so familiar. Ish hayav ve'eretz utz Yov shmo. Right? So there's a man... In, in the, in the land of Utz, his name was Eov. Now, where is Eretz Utz? The only thing we know about Utz is that Utz is one of the descendants of Nahor, seems to be an East Bank. This may connect with Chochmat Bnei the wisdom of the people on the other side of the, uh, the river, uh, the East Bank. Uh, notice the form here. We don't say that Iov haya be'eretzutz, but rather ish haya be'eretzutz, Iov shmo. And this follows a particular pattern that we found, for instance, at the beginning of Migilat Rut, in the beginning of the second chapter of Migilat Rut, and in other places in Tanakh, where we're first introduced to a person, then given their name, in which uh, the, that particular nuance is used, a rhetorical style is used, to indicate that the name has meaning and a connection to the story. And in this case, his name is Eov, which if you look at the name and just substitute the middle two letters, you end up with the word Oyev, which Eov refers to. His relationship with God is one of enmity in Parakut Gimel, and that may be indeed where this name comes from. Uh, in the meantime, we have no idea about when he lived. He was straightforward, he was wholehearted, uh, Yirei Elohim, he feared God. Now, Yirei Elohim, Yirat Elohim, is a phrase which is not uniquely Jewish, and one that uh, shows up in the pre-Matan Torah narratives. For instance, Avraham is called the Yirei Elohim, and is one that applies also uh, to people who are not part of the of the Abrahamic tribe. So, for instance, the Mialdot in Mitzrayim, who, according to many, including the Barbanel, are um, Egyptian. Uh, and it's a, uh, the, this notion of fear of God using the word Elohim seems to be more of an international or universal notion as opposed to a uniquely Jewish one. Vesar Mirai not only feared God, but he avoided evil. We'll see what that means particularly. He had seven sons and three daughters. These numbers are all typological numbers. We're familiar with them in Tanakh. What was his his ownership, his cattle. He had 7,000 flock, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, 500 donkeys, and lots of other stuff. The word avudah is one that we're familiar with from Yitzchak's holdings. So there's an Avraham allusion here. There's a Yitzchak allusion here. The size of the flock kind of reminds us of Yaakov. A lot of Breshi connections. And this man was greater, and the sense here is greater in wealth, than all of the people of the East. So Eov is positioned as somebody from the East. East here means the other side of the Jordan. And he seems to be wealthier and more powerful than all of them. And the numbers here are great numbers. 
Parenthetically, Tzemet Bakar, the fact that he uh, that is a mention of having teams of oxen indicates that he also owns land because the oxen are used for plowing. Doesn't mean they went; it means they would go. His sons would go and make a party. Beit Ishomo, everyone in his house of his day, meaning that they had some sort of a rotation where each one of the sons, there's seven sons, so each son would have a feast in his house one day during the week. They would summon their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And this doesn't seem like anything untoward. But when they had done a full circle of the feast, meaning a full week, Eov went and he sanctified them. Does that mean he purified them? Does he mean he did some ceremony with them? It sounds like he got up the next morning, meaning morning number eight, the morning of the beginning of the next week, and he would bring olot mispar kulam. He would bring olot to God per the number of all of them. Sounds like either seven or ten, depending if we include the sisters. Ki amar Eov, what was Eov's reason? Perhaps my sons sinned and cursed God. Levarech Elohim is a euphemism. Cursed God in their heart, which means that Eov is very sensitive to a couple things. First of all, even to that which is in somebody's heart. Second of all, he's sensitive to his own children's sins as opposed to his own, meaning in addition to his own. And the third thing, he's highly sensitive to the issue of cursing God. Now, why would they curse God? So this may fit with the entire uh, scenario described in uh, the, towards the beginning of Sefer Dvarim. You'll build lots of houses, you'll be wealthy, and you'll forget God. And the idea would be that uh, this is all my wealth. This is what Eov did his whole life. Meaning, every week he would bring all of these korbanot. He was a fabulously wealthy person, but he was spiritually very sensitive and concerned that his sons and uh, should have a proper attitude towards their wealth. And then one day it happened, and there's a split screen, because we're looking at the scene on earth, and now we're going to see a scene that uh, is very difficult for us to imagine within the context of Tanakh, because really only in Sefer Zechariah, and maybe in Sefer Daniel, do you have echoes of a similar scene. Literally, the children of God, who we heard about at the end of Parshat Bereshit, come and stand in front of God. Now, B'nei HaElohim here clearly means angels. There's angels that come to make their appearance before God. And here's the appearance of the Satan. Now, the Satan, which is as a verb, shows up already in Sefer Bamidbar, shows up chiefly as a noun in Bayit Sheni literature, notably in Zechariah. Uh, and the Satan is not the Christian, originally pagan, Satan, which is an opposite force to God, but rather is somebody who literally is sotet, turns away, which means it's his job to point out people's faults to God, what we might call a prosecuting attorney. That's his role in Zechariah also. So God said to the Satan, where are you coming from? Satan evidently appeared afterwards. So Satan answers God and says, I was traveling around the world, and I was walking around the world, and I was visiting the earth. Uh, parenthetically, just for those who are interested, Mark Twain wrote a delightful book called Letters from the Earth, which picks up on this theme about Satan's trip to earth and what he saw, and his description is a very sharp-witted um, critique of 19th century American Protestantism. Very fascinating read. 
So God said to him, Did you pay attention to my servant, Eov? Now, Avdi Eov, that's a great, great title um, to uh, to give Eov. There is no one like him in the whole world. And again, he's described, as the text described him, that's how God describes him, straightforward and pure-hearted, fearing God and avoiding evil. And so... God is ki'ilu, as if it were, pointing out to Satan God's own victories. I've got this loyal servant who is just perfect. Vayana Satan Satan answers God and says, Hachinam Elohim. Do you think he fears you for naught? Meaning, is he fearing you uh, and being loyal to you for nothing? Hello, Atasachta Vaado. Literally, you have covered him up. Uvaad Beto, and for his whole household, Uvaad Kol Hashalomisavim, and everything he has, you protected him. Maaseh Adav Berachta, you blessed everything he does. Umikneo Paratzparitz and his cattle and his sheep and all of his animals have become more and more numerous in the land. Veulam Shlachnayadcha. However, if you send your hand against him, which means punishment, Vegab Chol Hashalom, and and attack everything he owns. You'll see, he'll curse you right on your face. Which, of course, we already know that Eov is highly sensitive to the issue of cursing God. And the notion here is that Satan is challenging God and saying, if you can affect Eov in a negative way, I'll promise you, you'll see how bad he really is. Now, the whole notion of Satan having such a voice, of Satan talking back to God, challenging God, and then this next pasuk, Vayomer Adonai Satan, God says to Satan, everything he owns is in your hands. By the way, everything he owns by the way, includes also his family. Just don't touch him. God, Satan then leaves the presence of God to go do what he's going to do, and we're going to hear about that. This entire scenario is very much a piece of what drove Rambam and others to accept the position that Eov Lohayavalonivra. Not just because Eov was presented sort of as an everyman, as a universal person, there's no particular time frame, and it's unclear where he lives, and none of the other characters who appear in the book are people that we know from anywhere else, besides that we don't know Eov. Besides that, this whole theological impossibility of God allowing a person to be punished just to prove something, and that God accepting a challenge from one of his angels, and as a result, letting the angel loose to hurt an innocent person, is very strange, and would actually provide a very quick answer to the question that courses through the book, and it's not the answer that's given. So that could be a part of the reason, but this is simply a later setup to, to allow for the philosophic approaches that are presented in the book to go back and forth, and that's the position that Yov Lohi Avalonivra. Vahi Hayom. All right, so now we're back on earth, and Vahi Hayom, the day came, and that is a a, a literary bookmark, as we saw in Pasuk Vav, that switches the scene to heaven. Now, Vahiyayom switches the scene back to earth. So, there is sons and daughters are eating and drinking. That's what they do every day. It's evidently the first day of the week, whatever we're, their week starts, because they're in the eldest son's house. Now, this Malach is an, a messenger, not an angel. Comes to Yov and says, The cattle were plowing, and the, and the donkeys were grazing next to them. Shva, which is a kingdom in the South, South Arabian Peninsula, came and attacked them. 
and took all of them. And all of the boys who were working them, they killed with a sword. And I was the only one to get away to tell you this. This is echoes of the story of Yotam, and echoes of the story of Yatar, and echoes of the story of the Ish Binyamin, uh, in, in Shmuel. Several stories where there's one survivor from the, from the onslaught who comes to give the bad news. Uh, while he was talking, and another one came and gave this other news. Heavenly fire came down. Literally, God's fire came down from heaven. Ate up all of the, the flock and the young men, meaning the shepherds, and devoured them. I was the only one to get away to tell you. While he's talking, a third guy came and talked and spoke. Kasdim, now this is difficult because we just had Shva attacking, which is from the South Arabian Peninsula. Now we have Kasdim, the Chaldeans, which is Mesopotamia. So where does Eov live? Very difficult. Rashim. They made a three-pronged attack. In other words, Eov is like a little nation with his wealth, and is being attacked by different nations. And these are all uh, brigands, as it were. They took the camels. They grabbed, they raided the camels and took them. And he killed all of the boys, meaning all the ones who were watching the camels. And I alone survived. The same exact phrasing. This is three smashes that are overlapping because as he gets, as before he finishes getting the news of one disaster, already the second disaster starts to be reported. While he's talking, here's number four. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking in their uh, eldest brother's house. We saw that already. A huge wind came from the desert. Lifted up the four corners of the house. It fell on the young men, and it killed them. Now it sounds like this refers to his sons and daughters, although they're called Narim here because Narim is the pattern that was developed here. Parenthetically, and again, I was alone, the only one. Evidently, he was one of the servants that got away. That means that Eov's uh, cattle. Eov's flock, uh, Eov's uh, donkeys, uh, Eov's camels have all been taken, and now his children have all been killed. And one of the servants was able to get away and tell him. Parenthetically, this does follow a pattern uh, in narrative in Tanakh that we refer to as three plus one, or al shloshav yalar ba'at. Yazakovich did his doctoral dissertation on this particular pattern, and it's a pattern that we see throughout Tanakh, where something happens three times, and the fourth time is sort of the resolution. So Shimshon lies three times to Delilah, and the fourth time he tells her the truth. Three times Shmuel thinks that God is that God calling him is really Eli calling him. It turns out the fourth time he realizes it's God. And in many, many other instances of this, here you have three times that he hears about possessions being destroyed, and then he hears about his own children being destroyed. He gets up and he tears his coat. He tears his hair out. He lies down on the ground prostrate in mourning. And what's his reaction? His reaction is not what Satan was hoping for, which is to curse God. I came out of my mother's womb naked. And I'm going to return there, meaning to the grave, in the same way. God gave. 
God took away. God's name be blessed. Now notice here he uses the name of God, which we saw in the heavenly retinue, but in the description of Elohim. There he uses the actual name of God. And God's name should be blessed is a very famous line, of course. Many of us have have had the uh the occasion to say it uh at a at a funeral. With all of that Yov did not sin, and did not give lightness or licentiousness, as it were, to God. In other words, he did not curse God and he stayed loyal. And that ends the first scene. We're going to have two scenes like this, or the first act, as it were, which involves really three scenes. A scene in earth, a scene in heaven, and then a scene as the heavenly decree is played out on earth and as Eov responds. We'll see the same three in the next parak, which we'll pick up in the next podcast. In the meantime, everybody should have a wonderful day.